Hi, and welcome to the Love Eye Media Podcast. I'm your host, Joseph. On today's show, we talk to Carmel Cadet from MTech. So MTech is a fintech that deals in central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs. So on today's show, we had a discussion with Carmel about what exactly is a CBDC and how is it going to affect central banks going forward, especially with cross-border payments and other specific topics. We still talked about some controversies with CBDCs and also we talked about Web3. Is Web3 dead or is it still there but just in the background? So we had a nice conversation about those topics and I think you'll enjoy. Welcome back to the Labari Media Podcast. So on today's show, we have our guest, Kamel from Emtech. Hi, Kamel. How are you doing? Hi, Joseph. I'm doing good. Thank you. Glad to be back. Yeah, um, glad to have you back. So today we're going to talk about something that's more in your lane, most of the work you do. We're going to be talking about central bank digital currencies. So for the audience who may not know about what exactly is a central bank digital currency. Can you just give like a briefer of what it is you're working on? Sure. So I'm sure everyone listening to this is most likely familiar with a paper cash. Um, and paper cash is a form of central bank money, meaning that um, if you are using a paper cash, most likely you had a central bank that issued a, a currency, a sovereign currency that is used in a particular country. Um, and it is fully trusted um, as a form of a mean of exchange. And uh, we use it for uh, commerce. We use it for savings. We use it for um, gifts. And as we engage with money and as we engage in any activity, we use money every day. Um, there are different forms of money, but central bank money is very unique because, uh, as you can imagine, if someone kind of hands you a form of a local currency, um, you most likely won't think twice on whether that currency is valid or not, or if someone is going to take it um, when you want to buy food, when you want to buy something else for yourself, and you want to pay with that um, form of money. Um, you most likely have no doubt that someone else will, will take it from you within that jurisdiction. And that's because um, everyone understands that the cash is guaranteed by the central bank. That's a unique property uh, when it comes to having a legal mandate um, that guarantees the value of uh, the paper the paper money. Um, and that in itself in 2023 or in the 21st century, what we're talking about when it comes to central bank digital currency is how can a central bank also provide that level of um, guarantee uh, and of a modern version of cash in digital form? And there's a debate on, you know, what type of technology should be used to digitize cash. But um, at its core, that's what central bank digital currency is really talking about, is how can a central bank who issues paper cash today uh, provide people 
um, of digital version of cash that can be used in an economy. Um, and most likely as easy as uh, many have seen with Bitcoin and with other form of digital currencies, making cash that easy to use, uh, we believe at MTech can unlock um, unprecedented value in, in cash-based economies, but also economies that have um, old modern payment infrastructure when thinking about how to really modernize uh, a payment infrastructure in a country, we think central bank digital currency can really bring value to businesses, to individuals, whether they are banked or unbanked. Okay, that's that's a good take on it. So I think there is some confusion when it comes to digital currencies. Some say, oh, is it like cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin? So if somebody was asked, okay, what's the difference between digital currency and crypto? Like what would be the difference in your view? The main difference that I would point to is that for cryptocurrency, um, there's really no one, um, if you take Bitcoin, for example, if you lose your Bitcoin, there's really no one to call um, to say that you lost your Bitcoin. Because of the nature of it, um, it is something that is mined um, based on a set of governance rules that are pretty rigid, um, meaning that um, mining the correct um, combination um, allows a third party that you don't know um, to validate a transaction or to mine a token in a way that it becomes available and everyone trusted for it to be used from one person to the other. Um, there is a big difference in that being done from a set of codes, computer codes, and that has a um, mechanism and a level of transparency that allows people to get confident on how the token is created and how it is moved. But it requires a very new infrastructure in order to get that trust and that transparency. And everyone who wants to tap into cryptocurrency, that's why you need to onboard um, a, a particular type of um, technical stack when it comes to Web3 and, and digital currency wallets and platforms that enables you to, to manage that. Um, that's because it doesn't have the same um, clear guarantee um, and you know exactly who the issuer is of that particular token and you know it's fully backed by, um, by law and that the value of it will be accepted and recognized by any other person in that particular jurisdiction. Those are the, that's the big differentiation between cryptocurrencies where you really don't have that level of guarantee. Um, that's why it makes it a bit more risky, a lot more risky, honestly. Um, but it has certain benefits around how you can create more activities and create more products and design different rules that people can opt in to say, yes, I want to hold this asset for X, Y reason, whether it's to um, invest a bit of my income or um, grow um, 
value of their portfolio or diversify their investment portfolio. Um, but you see cash and bank deposits for that matter um, as a more stable and more um, trusted type of money and type of asset that I imagine those two will come to really coexist because central bank digital currency um, in many ways is not doing what cryptocurrency wants to do or has the ability to do. Um, and CB, central bank digital currency has certain properties that I think people will always look for when it comes to um, riskless, um, $1 is $1 or one Naira is one Naira, one city is one city. You know, we can debate on the value when it comes to currency depreciation and so on. But if you are, you know, just a, a you know, someone who's living in a particular country and you need access to currency, um, you want as many CDs as you as you can. You go out and earn your CDs and you want as much money as you can. And having that be stable um, is something that we think people will continue to want, even if they take parts of it and put it into um, cryptocurrencies for different reasons, whether it's cross-border payment, whether it's wealth creation, whether it's investing in speculation, I think you will see people wanting to do those. So that's why we eventually, we really believe that there's going to be, um, they're very different and that's the beauty of it. And because of that, I think they will, they will coexist. Cool. Okay. So you have been doing some work on the African continent. We know you've been working with the back of Ghana to introduce CBDs and also I think in Nigeria as well. So mm -hmm. my question is, why would like the central banks want to go digital using CBDCs? Like what's the advantage of using that other than other, some other, other payment methods? Sure. Um, so there, there's quite a bit of research now available documenting some of the benefits that central banks who have been testing CBDC have discovered the potential for. Um, when you think about Africa, what got me excited, you know, I'm like I mentioned to you the last time, I'm originally from Haiti, very prone and, and very knowledgeable about living in a cash-based society. I lived in Haiti until I was in my teens, my um, 17 years old. So very cash-based economy um, that also does not provide a lot of um, access when it comes to different financial products. And when you look at a country in more developed economies like the U.S. or Europe, um, there is a correlation between uh, people having access to capital um, in order to improve their lives, whether it's access to insurance, whether it's access to um, credit in order to pay for school, in order to buy a house, in order to um, you know, put a down payment on a house while you pay as you go. You don't have to be cash heavy um, in order to build wealth in many developed countries. And emerging countries, I mean, there are no mortgages, right? There's no concept of mortgage in Haiti. If you want to build a house, you really have to work, you save your money, and it might take you 10 years to build your house, but you have to be cash-based to build a house. Um, what got me 
of course, excited about what what was happening in Africa, starting with M-Pesa, showing the willingness and the, the attraction to mobile money and mobile phones as a mean to access new financial products like cross-border payment or, or peer-to-peer transfers in different locations. Um, if you read the story of M-Pesa around Safaricom employees going back home and driving eight hours just to give money to their family and come back, um, you end up creating products that really solve some, some major problems around um, time, around um, quality of life around access to faster capital for what you need, those things compounded together really, really makes a difference. And I think let's not take it for granted on why people in developed markets have better quality quality of life sometimes um, in ways um, when it comes to accessing better financial products. And even in emerging markets, People who have access to capital, people who have more money in the bank, get access to better financial products and better rates. Um, And that's really how the financial system works. But Africa is still a cash-heavy economy, so the central banks are the ones who are printing cash. So as they're looking at economies and the opportunity when it comes to financial technology when it comes to fintech, modern technology as a way to help them better um, address the mandate on how do you provide everyone in a country access to efficient payment system. That's legally a mandate for most central banks. Um, And a lot of people don't realize that, but central banks have a different mandate than commercial banks. Commercial banks are definitely profit-driven, so they want customers who have deposits and customers who can afford to take loans. The central Mm -hmm. banks don't have the same mandate. The central bank has a legal and government, kind of a public mandate to make sure that everyone in a particular country has access to efficient payment infrastructure, and they want to drive financial inclusion. Why? Because it helps with economic growth. It helps increase quality of life. It helps increase GDP per capita. It helps increase um, better financial infrastructure for investors to um, find ways to invest. There's so many cascading benefits into having good financial markets, good financial ecosystem, that the central banks are, of course, looking at how can they use modern technology to help drive that. And digital currency like Bitcoin showed a model of how much easier money can move and how you can lower um, barriers to people accessing digital finance. Um, And over time, although at the beginning it was more of, well, why would we do this versus now we have to do it. The way the central banks are talking about right now, including the Bank of Ghana, Central Bank of Nigeria, they are on the record publicly saying it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when um, and how. Of course, educating the public, um, making sure that a right design and selection is done in the context of their economy and that they understand the user's needs and what problems they're solving for is paramount. 
Um, but it's, the value proposition is pretty clear for central banks on why they should start thinking about introducing a digital version of cash. Yeah, so that's an interesting point you made about the central banks you know, trying to solve the problem. But even, I think even with Ghana, we're trying to introduce our own currency, which was the ECD, but it got postponed because of economic conditions. And I know in Nigeria, when they launched, they're having problems, you know, getting people to onboard to adopt the currency. So I think my question is, when do you think that, you know, this version of digital currencies will become like a norm, where we have people in the markets and everywhere else is using it like mobile money? What would you yeah. foresee that happen? I, I think over the next two or three years, you're going to see a, a shift when it comes to um, go to market for central banks. If we look at one example, which is the Bahamas, the Bahamas was the first country in the world to launch their CBDC. And what you learn from that experience is mostly it's not going to happen overnight. No one should expect that. Um, the early early um, um, adopters are learning as they go, and those are probably not the final versions of the solution. It's like, you know, even in the tech company, right, you have V0, V0, V1, V2, and you continue to really build. And I think what you're seeing right now is that um, more of a techie aspect of central banks, right, because this is a technical innovation that's happening for them. They're going to test things at first. The first thing might not work, um, but the value if the value proposition and the problem statement is still there, it's a matter of how do you iterate um, and based on the learning and how do you continue to improve. Um, if you tell me that a digital version of cash is not needed in an economy, then that's a different conversation. But if you believe cash um, meaning not needing a bank account to have access to your money digitally. You don't have to be paper-based and being able to use that for um, um, e-commerce, um, faster trade, um, faster payments for people who don't have bank accounts in rural areas. Um, if they have a mobile phone, they can use their digital cash. They can convert their paper cash on and off very easily from one agent to the other. The interoperability that can happen, you know, with CBDC being naturally digital, um, there are a lot of benefits that are go that the Central Bank of Bahamas, for example, is really now seeing the benefits around educating the public, onboarding more users. All of the fintechs in Barb in, in Bahamas now. Um, has almost been onboarded on the digital cash platform on their CBDC. And now what you're seeing is education for the end user um, and onboarding for the end user. So it's a journey, but I, I think you'll, you'll see and hear pretty soon on central banks on how they're going into the next phase of their journey when it comes to CBDC. And there's a lot for fintechs as well. There's there's a lot of opportunity for fintechs. Um, and as we work with central banks, finding that combination, that win-win scenario is something that gets us pretty excited. Right. Okay. So I want to just take this back a bit because now with Africa, we're trying to focus more on cross-border trade or cross-border payments in a way. And I know that we've introduced the AFTA. 
which is Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement. So we're trying to work on that. So my question is, how does CBDCs factor into that? Is it possible where we might see the fact that because we have more digital currencies in different African countries, um, the whole thing of cross-border payment become a little less or a little more easier? Like, how do you see CBDCs playing into cross-border payments? Um, So I think CBDC has a big role to play in a cross-border payment. Um, I'll tell you why. The the concept of cross-border payment by design assumes that you're dealing sometimes with two different currencies. And today, if the central bank is only providing paper cash as the form of central bank money, um, that's partly why you still have a lot of transactions that are happening in paper cash. And it's, it's, it, it's a burden on cross-border trade. Um, when you think about carrying paper cash you know, across borders and beds and so on, there are people who do it for all the wrong reasons. I don't think you're, we're not, you know, put that aside for a minute, money laundering and bad actors and so on you know, isolate that for a minute, but people who literally don't have a mean, right, to provide and do cross-border payment either cost-effectively or in line with trade routes um, that are happening are using a lot of paper cash today. And central banks have a role to play in saying, what if we enabled... Um, financial service providers who are catering to the traders or small businesses or merchants, right, to connect into a digital cash platform in order to start servicing different currencies. So if two central banks, for example, have their own CBDC, um, there are a few models that you can explore when it comes to cross-border. Some of, most of this is not um, a technical problem, a technology problem. Some of it is really policy and, of course, trade flows, So, which is why AFCA is important um, when it comes to opening corridors and enabling the regulatory frameworks um, and the business frameworks to open the borders, but once you have flow of con- of um, of consumption, you can enable two central banks to say we might have a wallet in each other's CBDC. Let's hold each other's CBD- CBDC, for example, for the purpose of reserves. So as transactions are happening. You, you have one layer where the FSB is managing if they have both legs. So let's say it's Ghana and Nigeria. So let's say, you know, the FSB has a wallet in the ECB and the FSB has a wallet in the Inaira. You can imagine that they can manage their own treasury. So that's, you know, an example of a closed loop, for example, that they, they can manage their own treasury and manage their own flow of cash. If for any reason um, 
the imbalance of flow. So let's say you end up having too many CDs um, and you don't have enough other flows that would take CDs. If the central bank was willing and able to take the CD back from you and give you either US dollars or give you other another currency in a particular region because they have a wallet in other regions as well, you really start tapping into digital cash becoming truly cross-border and interoperable and a lot more seamless than what it is today. Um, and that's why we believe in the tokenization um, when it comes to using the proper technology is very important to enable um, use cases like this. Um, the idea of enabling central banks to turn digital cash into a modern infrastructure, right, can enable fintechs and financial service providers and banks and other um, organization to really create new products and enable uh, cross-border payments. I can go down the list of different models. You can have atomic swap, you can have exchanges, you can have third-party exchanges. You can. I, I think you're going to see um, a plethora of models that are possible. Now, how does the regulatory framework um, get designed um, that takes into consideration that there are imbalance uh, uh, balances of flows right now um, across countries. Not everything is even. How do you um, provide, you know, a backstop to that for cross-border payment is the big question. And I think central banks have a key role to play in that, and they can. Okay. So I want to switch gears for a second and just talk about some of the controversies when it comes to CBDC. So I know your your office is based in New York, and I know that in America right now, they have some presidential candidates running for office. And one of them was um, Rick DeSantis. And he mm -hmm. said that if he was elected, he would basically ban CBDCs because he sees it as a form of you know, government control. And even, even in China, there's also commentary that, well, they think that the Chinese government is using CBDCs to basically like spy on their citizens. So even though those are just two isolated cases, do you think that that type of narrative could actually maybe one day seep into the African continent where, you know, we're having coups and everything else? Do you think that some might, conspiracy theories might float around that say that CBDCs might be used to control or even monitor citizens? And if so, how do you think that the government needs to kind of curtail these conspiracy theories if they ever come about? Yeah, I mean, this is, of course, a very active um, and very hot topic, a sensitive topic for for many people. Um, and I I know myself, and I tell the team as well, culture eats technology for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Right. Um, and I think that's going to be the case for CBDC as well. In order for CBDC to be successful, um, if there is a particular fear and a particular culture around certain countries and certain central banks and their views of central banks, addressing that is going to be paramount. If you're a central bank and you're going to issue CBDC, you really, really need to understand 
the sentiment of users when it comes to central bank and fears around control, fears around data privacy. The way we think about it, um, of course, we're a technology provider. As we're thinking about how do we help central banks build this, we have to think about how do they address the concerns, um, valid concerns, by the way, because for anybody that you talk to about such concern, they'll give you a list of examples of where governments went wrong um, and did the wrong things when it comes to accessing people's data. Um, However, there is, of course, an extreme version of um, the ultimate fear of what central banks can do. So there are a couple of things that we say. One, um, central banks specifically as an organization um, have legal mandates and are also limited on what they can and cannot do when it comes to um, anything. Um, Paper cash, for example, there is no concept of uh, particularly um, going after someone and take their paper cash from their wallet um, because of that particular, um, because of a particular action or what they did. Um, If there is a regime that has an approach of stealing people's money, which I grew up in, by the way, where people used to just walk into people's houses and take all their their money and rob their stuff. The mafia does that, you know, in many countries. You have different systems that have the concept of taking people's money. But the, the legal mandate and the legal construct around cash is that your cash is your cash. The central bank does not come and take your cash back although they're the one who issued it, right? There's no such concept because legally they cannot do that. It's a bearer instrument. And when it is considered a bearer instrument, that means once you own it, you own it. And so there are a lot of fears, but what I tell people, there are two ways. One, absolutely the engagement and the transparency should be demanded when it comes to the rules that govern the token and how are... Um, two very specific things are treated by a central bank. One, data privacy and data visibility. What is the balance between using public distributed ledgers, for example, which is what we use, where that gives you an automatic level of transparency to everyone, not just to the central bank, but to everyone who knows, who would know your wallet number, would be able to see your balance, for example. But that's what we do with Bitcoin today. And the idea of transparency and having distributed ledger is a key component. So if you're comfortable with Bitcoin, technically you should be comfortable with public, um, at least um, tracking of a transaction, not of your information per se, right? but public sharing of information. So how do you create that balance between data privacy and not showing people's data and not seeing it, designing it in a way and and having a technical design that ensures that you do not see um, people's data as a central bank. Um, And then in addition to that, making sure that the data 
if for money laundering reasons, because if you do not put some parameters around it, then you will have the bad actors taking advantage of it, making sure that it is also designed if it needs to go through regulatory review and compliance review for money laundering, that there is a clear process around how that's done. It's not just a matter of, you know, give me access to this person's wallet so I can see at will. And I will tell you, no central bank that we've been working with wants to have that level of access. None. Because believe it or not, it's a big risk for them mm -hmm. to have access to that level of data. They don't want to have that exposure. B very big reputational risk. They don't even want to keep that data because it puts the onus on them in case of cybersecurity and this and, you know, the, the, the level of risk that you have to take when it comes to seeing customer data naturally creates a hedge against a central bank wanting to do that. So that's privacy. The other piece that we see people really, really caring about is about control. Can a central bank take my CBDC because I vote for X? Good question, yeah. Right? And believe it or not, the beauty of Web3 um, offers even better tools than existed before in making sure something like this cannot happen. I'll give you an example. In our design, what we think about, we selected a protocol that would enable people to really treat cash as a bearer instrument the way it is today in paper form, meaning my private key, I have the option to host and self-custody my wallet. And the central bank cannot access in no way, shape, or form my private key. And if, you know, not to go into a lesson of Web3 and smart contract and tokens and so on, but your private key is what tells your token what to do. And right. tells your wallet what is happening, right? And what, what it can and cannot do. So by having that mechanism very, very clearly defined and you can codify access around that gives a more transparent way to make sure that a central bank cannot control. Now, will that address 100% of the fear and the concerns? Absolutely not. But we think that there are really, really good ways that we can put frameworks in place better than traditional um, finance even in a way to make sure that central banks do not get access to your data, um, that compliance can be done for money laundering purposes, and making sure that we have a mechanism in which people can self-custody and have their private key um, and treat cash as, as they want it to be treated. And right. have have the option, right? Have the option to, to share data if they don't want to. I mean, I think what you're seeing Africa, your question was, is that going to happen in Africa? There are some places that I see um, that you might definitely not have a high level of trust with the government and the central bank based on um, previous experience, but there are some central banks that are highly trusted. Mm -hmm. Right. Bank of Ghana is one of those. I mean, I know the economic woes and so on. I mean, I don't know about anybody else, but I would not want to be a central bank governor doing COVID and after COVID and, yeah. you know, doing a Ukraine war and everything else that 
you know, given it's a Titanic, right? An economy is not something that you flip overnight. You have so many different interests and there's so much that people don't know that goes behind the scenes and that happens in public and the media version of it and so on. But I would not want that job, you know, yeah. not in a million years. That said, um, I think you're seeing a understanding of digitization and how can that help, you know, any economy today grow into a digital economy to tap into the benefits of making commerce and trade um, reach more people and build wealth for more people and give more people access to other markets. Instead of just being an import-based economy, how can you export more? And can payments flow with that export? That's very exciting if you think about what could be done um, and of course, continue to have um, good standards around data privacy and control. Yeah, I mean, during, during your speech, you mentioned um, Web3, which is interesting because um, Web3 has this thing of where, I don't know, I think it peaked during COVID time because everybody was exploring new ways of Web3, whether it was NFTs and other things. I know you, your company launched something called a Web3 uh, Kits. I think it was in July. The so, CBC um, yes. Yeah, yeah, the CBC Kits, yeah, for fintechs. So I want to just get your take. Like, can you just explain, like, in layman terms, what that is, like, what it enables for fintechs for, with this? And also, I also want to get your opinion on Web3 in general, because it seems to be something that's, you know, always there, but it seemed like the hype or just the noise around it has died down a bit. Um, so wait, so say that last part of the question for me again, or if Web3 yeah. is what? Yeah, so Web3, I think it was like really hyped up during COVID times because everybody was exploring different ways. But I think that the noise has come down a bit on Web3. I think blockchain is still popular, but Web3, it's... Anyway, like, I think the public sentiment has gone down on Web3, but even though it's still enabling a lot of things. So I wanted to get your take on it. Like, is Web3 dead? Is it still in the background? What's your take on Web3? And just give an explanation of what the WebKit does for you guys. Oh, sure. Okay. So Web3 is not dead. I think um, the, the conversation last year around FTX and the um, adjustments that we saw around the crypto markets, that is par for course, if you ask me, because the beauty and you know the risk as well is that Web3 opened up um, the ability of creating virtual assets in a way that could be very niche and market and be structured in a way to gamify financial products or um, create different incentives, um, more creative incentives outside of the traditional banking system. Um, you know, traditional banking system really looks at loans. Um, you know, how can you 
um, get as much of a spread between the deposit, the interest rate that you pay on deposit versus the interest that you can earn on loans that you give out, right? That's the banking system in a nutshell. And then the, the loans and the cash that they have, many times they also invested into the capital market. So then you get into the capital market side, mostly commodities and stocks, right? And, you know, in 2000, everybody got creative. Uh, not 2000, 2008, 2006 timeline, everybody mm-hmm. got creative on what those products could do, how you could package them, how you could reinvent yep. them and create new products. Essentially, Web3 did the same thing, but with code, right? The expansion of the tech part of the solution is really what exploded. And with that, you can't really put it back in the box, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? You, you can't uninvent the technology. It's yeah. out there. And everyone who knows how to code well enough and wants to learn can go and figure out how to mine Bitcoins and how to build apps on Bitcoin. And there are a lot of investors and a lot of capital that's being poured in into figuring those things out. So I think you saw a first wave of what that could do. But, you know, I I think a lot of good things happen from that. What that also, if you talk to central bank communities, they'll tell you the moment there was a biggest shift in central banks when it comes to CBDC was when Facebook Libra as a token was introduced. It was the... Not when Bitcoin got invented. Bitcoin got everybody curious. But Libra, Libra defined a product, right? That could service billions of people and that created the biggest potential risk to public money, if you will, public version of money. And imagine that you have one social media company really owning that space. Of course, you know, the regulatory... Um, hammers came out around, you know, sounding the alarm around something like this, but it proves something was possible. Mm-hmm. And that's what captured the imagination around digital currency. So if you ask me, Web3 is not dead, Web3 infrastructure is being built right now in digital assets. You Now you're seeing all the major financial institutions jumping on that you, I think you are part of the cycle where the adoption is not going to be as flashy and as mm-hmm. as commercialized as the first wave was because a lot of that was riding on the marketing and the hype. But the true adoption, when it comes to someone in Ghana um, who's sitting, you know, who has a an online um, website to sell products and sell, you know, virtual things, whether it's website, for example, we're working with a FinTech that sells, that helps small businesses set up their websites and receive payments online. So if they wanted to sell art, if they wanted to sell anything, they might have the logical, the the logistics, the physical logistics to go deliver and they can organize that, but they didn't have a way to get paid online. Right. Right. Now you enable someone to get paid online, 
And now imagine that you remove the need for this person to have a bank account before they can get paid online. They can set up a cash wallet, walking into their store or give it to a friend to say, here's my wallet number, take my paper cash from me. Can you transfer cash from your wallet to my wallet? And do that in seconds. And then from there, they pay for something, they buy something online and they can get paid online and you just send their wallet information and they can get paid online. I think, you know, I'm really excited about the use cases that can happen with Web3. And that happens because of the Web3 component, the tokenization, the use of smart contracts and provides auditability and more trust as far as how those tokens are created and moved. Um, Yeah. I think I think Web three has a lot a lot to offer. Cool. Okay, we're just about wrapping up. So I have one yeah. final question for you. So you've been doing work in Africa with different central banks. Now I think you work with, like we said before, the Bank of Ghana. I think you did some work in Nigeria as well. So what's the what's your roadmap for the rest of the year as far as getting central banks online? Who are you working with, and what's the roadmap for the rest of the year? Well, um, I think you'll hear something very soon um, of an announcement that we're working on in the next couple of weeks. So maybe I will let you know as soon as we are able to share, but um, paperwork has been signed and we're working on an announcement right now with a particular central bank that we're going to launch with a CBDC hackathon kit. So we introduced the CBDC innovation kit for fintechs who don't need to wait for central banks to deploy if they want to start testing and understanding what products they can build around that, which is very exciting. We onboarded over 10 fintechs already um, and that are already testing with our APIs. We made our infrastructure available to them. Um, And then now with the central bank side, the problem and the pain point that we've been hearing is, you know, how should we build our CBDC, right? What does the ecosystem, what will get us adoption? What would make this a success? Um, You've seen some central banks launch first before doing that discovery, or they're doing that discovery after they launched. But some central banks um, would like to understand what can the ecosystem build, right? What problem do they have? They don't have to solve all the problems. I think there's a hunger and curiosity from the fintech ecosystem, from developers to help solve some of the key challenges that central banks don't know how to to fix yet or don't have to, you know, enabling that private and public um, co-creation to happen. This is why we introduced the CB, we're introducing the CBDC hackathon kit for central banks. Awesome. Well, can't wait to hear that announcement. So I guess on that note, we can just wrap it up here. So thank you very much, Kamel. Really good. Thank you very much.